This morning we're reading from Luke 4, 14 through 21, and I will be reading from the Message Translation. Jesus returned to Galilee, powerful in the Spirit. News that he was back spread through the countryside. He taught in their meeting places to everyone's acclaim and pleasure. He came to Nazareth, where he had been raised. As he always did on the Sabbath, he went to the meeting place. When he stood up to read, he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, God's Spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor. He sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and the battered free, to announce this is God's time to shine. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the assistant, and sat down. Every eye in the place was on him, intent. Then he started in. You have just heard Scripture make history. It came true just now in this place. All who were there watching and listening were surprised at how well he spoke. But they also said, isn't this Joseph's son, the one we've known since he was just a kid? He answered, I suppose you're going to quote the proverb, Doctor, go heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we heard you did in Capernaum. Well, let me tell you something. No prophet is ever welcomed in his hometown. Isn't it a fact that there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah during that three and a half years of drought when famines devastated the land? But the only widow to whom Elijah was sent was in Sarepta in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one cleansed was Naaman, the Syrian. That set everyone in the meeting place, seething with anger. They threw him out, banishing him from the village, then took him to a mountain cliff at the edge of the village to throw him to his doom. But he gave them the slip and was on his way. So before we get into the actual text of this Luke, this Luke and passage, let's talk a little bit about some, some background, some historical context. Who is Luke, the guy writing this, this thing? Who is he? Well, a lot of us have been taught and told that he was a physician, and there's a letter to the Colossians that, that says that, but there is debate that he was actually a physician. I don't even really know that it matters a lot other than the fact that I was traditionally taught that this made him sophisticated and uh, more learned and uh, more precious and special than maybe other people because he was a physician. But there's really no way to know that 100% for sure. Is Luke a Jew or a Gentile? Well, that depends on who you ask. Some scholars will say he was a Hellenized Jew. Some say he's a Gentile Christian. There is no consensus on that either. He was a well-educated Greek speaker, and he was well acquainted with life and travel in the eastern Mediterranean. He is believed to be the author of the Lucan Gospel as well as the book of Acts. And a lot of times you will see that uh, when we speak of Luke and Acts, it will be Luke slash Acts because Acts is considered to be a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. And, then, and that Acts picks up right where Luke leaves off. Another thing about Luke and Acts 
They make up the biggest part of our New Testament. I didn't know that. At 28% of the New Testament is from Luke. Paul's letters are at 24%, and the Johannine are at 20%. Now, in all the Paul and John letters, they're only at that percentage if all the letters are written by them, that are attributed to them, and most likely they are not. So, he has a lot of influence in our New Testament. Did Luke know, John per- know Jesus personally? Most likely not. Like Paul, he probably did not meet Jesus, but he probably was a contemporary of Jesus. That brings me to, when was the Gospel of Luke written? The Gospel of Luke was written sometime between CE 71 up to 90 CE. So about anywhere from 40 to uh, 60 years after Jesus died, the book of Luke was written. The Gospel of Luke was written. Now, what is the context of Luke 2? Now, this is important, and um, I'm not really big on timelines and dates, and I know they can get tedious, but I think this is important because this is a concept that, at least for me, I was never taught a whole lot about this thing called this frame of time of Second Temple Judaism. Now, If you were to ask a Jewish person, they could describe this to you and give you good details, but growing up Protestant, it just wasn't that big of a deal because we were Protestant and that didn't matter as much to us. But it is very, very important that we understand what Second Temple Judaism is all about. Now, I'm going to briefly write some things on this dry erase board. If you want to jot the dates down, you can. Don't worry about it if you can't. I'll try to write large enough where you can see. However, at some point in the future, maybe when we're all back in the building, I would like to go through this a little bit more and maybe break it down a little bit better for all of us. But right now, this is just going to be kind of a brief overview of what Second Temple Judaism means because this is the context that Luke is written in. First Temple Judaism is when Solomon's temple was built up until the time it was torn down. It was torn down at the capture with the Babylonians captured the Jewish people around 587 BCE. So, at 587 BE, I'm sorry, BCE, Solomon's temple was torn down by the Babylonians. The Jewish people are captured and taken into captivity, and it stays that way for around 50 to 60 years. After that time, the Persians take over from the Babylonians and The Persians say, hey, guys, if you want to go back to your homeland, you can. By this point, some of them do, but most of them don't. Uh, We listened to Lisa McCormick a few weeks ago in the Godly Play demonstration. She talked about that, about how some could go home, but some didn't. But that was okay because they learned that God was there anyway, no matter where they were. So they go back home and they rebuild their temple. They rebuild the Solomon's temple. And that is complete in 515 BCE. 515 BCE begins Second Temple. Ah, I cannot speak this morning. Second Temple Judaism. That goes all the way to 70 CE. What happens around 70 CE? The temple is destroyed. The Romans destroy it. 
So this 500 and something year period of Second Temple Judaism is important. During this, these 500 something years, the Torah is being written down. That's important, 5th to 4th century. Also, we get the books of Haggai and Isaiah and Malachi and Ezra and Nehemiah, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Esther and Koheleth. All that's being done in those 500 years. Also, from 332 BCE, and I'm not good with dates, so that's why I'm going to refer to this a lot, to 164 BCE is the Hellenistic period. Now, as it sounds, this is when the Greeks ruled the world. Now, there were some important things that happened in these years when the Hellenistic period was going on. The Septuagint was written, the Greek Old Testament. The Dead Sea Scrolls, Dead sea Scrolls were written up, all the way up to 68 CE. The Book of the Watchers and the Jubilees and even Daniel are written in this period, which that makes Daniel the last book of the Old Testament in our Protestant Bibles. We consider it Malachi, but it's not technically the last book that's written. Now, then at 164 BCE to 63 BCE, we have the Romans. I'm sorry, I'm not, the, I'm not the Romans, I'm sorry. The Maccabean period or the Hasmonean period. This is where we get the Maccabean revolt. This is where Hanukkah comes into, Hanukkah comes into play. And this is when uh, there's some writings going on during this time too. And then from 63 BCE to 70 AD, we get the Romans, and the temple is destroyed in 70 CE. During this time frame, the Psalms of Solomon, 4th Ezra, and 2nd Baruch are written, and also the seven definitive Pauline letters were written in the 50s CE. Now, there are a lot of books in the New Testament that claim to be written by Paul, but there's only seven that are actually claimed to be definitively written by Paul. And those are written in the 50 CE, about 20 years after Jesus died. The Gospels were written between 70 CE to over 100 CE, a lot of years after Jesus is gone. At 70 CE, the temple is destroyed, and the period of the Second Temple Judaism ends. Now, why have I told you all that? Why is that important? Well, a lot of us have been taught that there are, there are 400 years between Malachi in the Gospels. Well, there is. It's actually Daniel in the Gospels. But we've also been taught during that, it's called this intertestamental period, that it's dark and God goes silent. God quits speaking in these 400 years. And that all of a sudden Jesus is born and God begins speaking again. However, God is not quiet during this time. The Jewish religion was evolving and diversifying. During this Second Temple Judaism timeline in a world, was the world that Jesus knew. I'm going to say this twice because it was revolutionary for me. I hope it is for you. Some of you may know this already. A lot of you may know this already. I did not. 
Jesus was not immersed in the religion of the Old Testament Jews. That was not his world. If you are here in this building with me right now, I would ask you to raise your hand if you believe that too. I always believe that the Old Testament, the way that I read it today, that was the world of Jesus, but it was not. Jesus' world was of Second Temple Judaism, and it was different from First Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism marked a time of evolving and diversifying for the Jewish people. There was the Hellenization of the Jews. The Old Testament cannot explain to us the world of Jesus. Think about this. Think about it this way. Where in the Hebrew Scriptures does it tell us about the institution of a synagogue? It doesn't. There is no synagogue, this institution of a synagogue mentioned in the Old Testament that we know. That's because it came about in the Second Temple Judaism in the later years of that. But that's what Jesus talks about constantly in the Gospels. He goes to the synagogue. That was not the way his ancestors, the ancient Israelites, worshipped. Where do we, in the Hebrew Scriptures, do we read of the term rabbi? We don't. They're called priest. Rabbi is a first century construct, well after the writing of the Hebrew Scriptures. Even the Scripture readings that Jesus is used in this Luke 4 passage, it is a systematic reading of Hebrew Scripture that's called the Haftorah, the Haftorah. It's where we Protestants get our lectionary readings. It is a tradition that came about in Second Temple Judaism when they would stand in the synagogue, they would read from the Haftorah. They would have specific passages that they read out of different genres of literature that they had, and that was their reading, that was their lectionary, for lack of a better word. So Jesus is reading from the Haftorah. That's not an ancient Israelite construct. Haftorah is never mentioned in the Old Testament as being practiced. The Gospels are lived out in this second temple Judaism. And it does make a difference in how we contextualize and understand the Gospels. So now that we have looked at the background of Luke 2, let's take a look at what's going on here in the Scriptures. Jesus returned to Galilee powerful in the Spirit, verse 14 says. Where is Jesus returning from? Well, he's just spent 40 days in a desert being tempted by Satan. That's, we need to know that. Verse 16 says, He came to Nazareth where he had been raised. And Nazareth was his hometown. Nazareth was a city, a town, of about 1,600 to 2,000 people. That's about the size of the town that I grew up in. Now, I've said it before, and I'll probably say it the whole time I ever breathe. In a town that size, and a town the size of, of Nazareth and of Belmont, Mississippi, everyone knows who your third cousin is. They know what you did when you were 16. They know why you really wrecked that car. They know why you don't go to church anymore. They know how much money you make. They know what really happened in the divorce. They know if you can afford this or not. I remember growing up with my parents, and if somebody bought a new house or had a new nice, really nice vehicle, sometimes I'd hear my parents say, they can't afford that, because they knew. They knew what they did for a living. They, you just knew details about each other's lives in a small town. You know. Folks like this don't let you live your past down. You know the ones I'm talking about. 
These folks in Nazareth, they knew Jesus. The scripture says, as he always did on the Sabbath, he went to the meeting place. When he stood up to read, he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. Now let me say this. The reason that Jesus stood up to read the scroll was that it would have been too awkward to read it sitting down. It's big. This is Isaiah. There's a lot to read in Isaiah. There's more than one author. There's four, maybe six authors of Isaiah. It's a lot on the page. So he has to stand and unroll the scroll. And then he says, God's Spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor, sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and the battered free, to announce this is God's time to shine. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to his assistant, and then he sat down. Every eye in the place was on him intent, then he started in. You've just heard scripture make history. It came true now just in this place. In other translations we read, we read, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled right before your very eyes. In this passage, Jesus is combining two passages from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 61.1 and Isaiah 58.6. Now, in his, in his retelling of these uh, passages in Isaiah, he omits two things from these two sets of scripture in Isaiah, from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. He omits two things. He leaves out to heal the brokenhearted, and he also leaves out in a day of vengeance. Now, Richard Rohr tells us that by, uh, he believes that Jesus is deliberately telling them that, that their understanding of God might be different than what has been taught before. That maybe God is not a punitive deity. But since Luke, but since Luke leaves out the brokenhearted part, I don't know if Rohr's right. But I like to think that he is on this one because I don't like the idea of a punitive God. Is that better? Okay. Now this is the expectation of these Israelites. That a Messiah figure would come at the end of time to restore their fortunes. To gather all the Israelites back to their homeland. That it would be, there would be defeat of all of their enemies that the resurrection of the dead would happen, the last judgment and the revelation of a new Jerusalem. Those were the things that were wrapped up in their ideas of Messiah. But a couple of things that have gotten lost in the way of the way we understand the Jewish expectation of Messiah somewhere has gotten lost because during the second temple Judaism, Judaism as a religion was not as important to most people as once before. That was what their dad did. That was what their granddads did. They were being Hellenized. They were being, um, they, were, they were adopting the culture around them as we all do. It's human nature. We do it to survive. We do it to thrive. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just what we do. But this expectation of Messiah that would look like this, it's not as important. And they didn't all see it the same way either. Even the ones that it was important to, it didn't mean the same thing. For me... My understanding has always been that every Jew on the planet at that time had one idea of what the Messiah was supposed to look like and do, and that's not true. Second, Temple Judaism changes that notion. But not only is this passage found in uh, Isaiah, 
It's also found in Psalm 146. In Psalm 46, Jesus quotes part of this passage too. Happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. So not only is Jesus quoting from two places in Isaiah, not only is Jesus quoting from Psalm 146, he is also quoting from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls was a sect that is believed of Judaism that is contemporary to Jesus. Now, this particular piece of Dead Sea Scroll is called the Messianic Apocalypse, and it survives in one single copy. This scroll is dated to the Hasmonean period, and in the aftermath of the Maccabean Revolt, in other words, this scroll from the Dead Sea was likely written during the first quarter of the first century BCE, roughly a hundred years before Jesus. This messianic apocalypse from the Dead Sea Scroll reads as follows. Follow me just a little bit here. This is what this says in the Dead Sea Scroll. For the heavens and the earth will listen to his Messiah, and all which is in them shall not turn away from the commandments of the holy ones. Strengthen yourselves, all O you who seek, all O you who seek the Lord in his service. Will you not find the Lord in this, all those who hope in their heart? For the Lord seeks the pious and calls the righteous by name, and his spirit hovers over the poor, and he renews the faithful with his strength. For he will honor the pious among the throne of an eternal kingdom, freeing prisoners giving sight to the blind, straightening, straightening out the twisted. I love that. I don't know why that didn't make it into Isaiah, but I do love that. Straightening out the twisted. And forever shall I hold fast to those who hope and in his mercy. A man's reward for good works shall not be delayed, and the Lord will perform marvelous acts such as have not, not existed, just as he said. For he shall heal the badly wounded, he shall make the dead live, he will proclaim good news to the poor. He shall satisfy the poor. He shall lead the uprooted and the hungry he shall enrich. Jesus quotes two places in Isaiah, Psalm 146 and the Dead Sea Scroll. Why did Luke think this needed to be included in his gospel? Why? So that the Jewish people would know that this prophecy is being fulfilled in Jesus. He's saying, this guy is a very Jewish man, and he is fulfilling this messianic prophecy, this messianic apocalypse that we have come to believe in and hope for. But you know, also the thing about Luke, Luke is the one gospel writer who asks all the questions. Luke, over and over in his gospel, wants to know, who do you think he is? Who is this man? Who? I'm going to read some of the passages from Luke where uh, this question of who keeps coming over and over again. Who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? I'm here inviting outsiders, not insiders, 
an invitation to a changed life. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He said to them, where is your faith? They were afraid and amazed and said to one another, who then is this? who commands even the winds and the water to obey him. Once when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And then he said to them, who do you say that I am? But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there, and he said to them, tell us by what authority... Are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? For one is greater, the one who's at the table, or the one who serves. Is it not the one at the table? But I'm among you, the one who serves. He asked them what things, they replied. The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a mighty prophet indeed, and word before God and all the people. Luke wants to know, who do you say that he is? Luke wants to know, who is he? Who do I say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Who did the people in this story in Luke 4 say that he is? Luke is leading us on a path, he hopes, a path to belief. Belief in Christ as the Messianic Messiah that was promised. All who were there watching and listening were surprised at how well he spoke. But they also said, isn't this Joseph's son, the one we've known since he was just a kid? Now, another way that I have been taught to interpret this verse throughout the years is that this is a term of derision or hostility toward Jesus. Like, who does this kid think he is? We know him. We were there that day he smarted off to his mom. I didn't think that kid would amount to much. Well, that smart mouth. He, he's too big for his britches. That is not what the interpretation really should be. This statement from these people are, wow, look at this kid. We've seen him his whole life, and look how good he's doing. This is our boy. This is my hometown boy. And he's done good, and we're proud of him. And then Jesus comes in right in after that and says, I suppose you're going to quote the proverb, Doctor, go heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we heard you did in Capernaum. Well, let me tell you something. No prophet is ever welcomed in his hometown. And here's the thing. They've just said, hey, we're proud of you. Way to go. Add a boy. And he says, Whatever. I know what you really think. What Jesus is saying here is, you think I'm all that in a bag of chips right now, but there's going to come a moment where you will not think that. Jesus is prophesying about what's going to happen to the people in his hometown. At one point, at some point, his hometown people will reject him. That's what he's saying. They don't know this, because right in this moment they think, great, but there will be a day to come. I wonder if when that day came, those people in Nazareth went, oh yeah, he said that would happen. Hmm. You know, 
but he's also drawing upon the Old Testament prophets. Nobody liked the Old Testament prophets. Nobody likes to have their sin pointed out. Nobody likes to be told how bad they are. I mean, prophets are weird, and, and they say really bad, negative things. Nobody likes a prophet, and Jesus is aligning himself in that tradition as well. And Jesus goes on to say, Isn't it a fact that there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah during that three and a half years of drought when famine devastated the land? But the only widow to whom Elijah was sent was in Sarepta and Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one cleansed was Naaman the Syrian. And then, that said, everyone in the meeting place seething with anger. They threw him out, banishing him from the village. They took him to a mountain cliff at the edge of the village to throw him to his doom, but he gave them the slip and he was on the way, on his way. By using these two examples from the Hebrew scripture of Elijah and Elisha, Luke is reminding his audience... This man is a real deal. He really is the messianic Messiah foretold us. This story is trustworthy. What he's saying is trustworthy. And Luke is also saying something else, that this prophecy has just been fulfilled, been fulfilled right before your very eyes. When Luke uses these two examples and puts them in Jesus' mouth of Elijah and Elisha, can you notice what Jesus is saying? I confess and tell you that I did not. I had to look a little bit deeper. In these two stories, when the drought was happening, there were many Israelite widows who needed help. But Elijah didn't help them. Elijah helped the Gentile woman, the pagan, the infidel, not his own people. And there were plenty of Jewish lepers. I'm sorry, I am just a mess with this microphone this morning. And I know JJ's probably over there yelling at me for touching it like I am. I'm sorry. Anyway, there are plenty of Jewish lepers to tend to. But Elisha only healed one, the Gentile, the pagan, the infidel. In certain corners of religious interpretation, this seems to be saying that God is about to forsake his chosen people, the Israelites for the Gentiles. This new religious, religion that Jesus seems to be starting it's for the outsider, not the insider. This is a new religion. The Jewish people have rejected God one too many times. They will reject Christ. And this is where we get the, th the theology of replacement theory. This theory teaches that because the Jewish people rejected Christ as their Messiah, then God replaced his chosen people with the Gentiles. In some form, shape, or fashion... This was the interpreted that, interpretation that was handed down to me. I don't remember a pastor ever saying this, this that blatantly, but it was there. It is an insidious and heinous interpretation of this verse. But it has been a thread of anti-Semitism for centuries. This theory, this replacement theory, says that Jewish people are disposable replaceable as the apple of God's eye, discarded. And we, the Gentiles, become the people of God. We are chosen. We are privileged and righteous, the insider, the top of the heap, the best, God's favorite, because we believe correctly and the Jewish people do not. Now, this is how this replacement theory was internalized for me. 
my senior year in high school, uh, it was coming up on homecoming. And in our town, we had uh, 9th through 12th, gra 12th grade, and there were senior maids, there were, you know, maids. There were freshman maid, sophomore maid. I don't know if any of you have that tradition as well. I don't, but that's what we did. And, and then for the senior class, we had a homecoming queen, a senior maid, and a football queen. The football queen was, uh, queen was uh, the, the girl that uh, the, guy, the football players voted on. And so <clears throat> on Friday night at, the, at homecoming, the girls would come out sitting on the top of a convertible or a T-top of a really nice cars. We would use the cars from like the local car dealer, like the new Corvette, the new Camaro, the new whatever. And they would sit on the back of the car in their pretty gown and their da-da-da, and they would wave and they would drive through the people on both sides of the field. And they'd stop at the 50-yard line and get out of the car and they would walk forward with their escort. And while the girls were walking forward with their escort, there, would be a, there was an announcer that was giving their biography. This is so-and-so, she is the daughter of so-and-so and so-and-so, she does this, she does that, she's, her goals are to do this and to do that, and they do the same thing with the guy. The football queen that year was a girl I'd known my whole life because I was a senior in high school and I, I grew up with 55, I graduated with 55 people, so of course we knew everybody. But as she was coming across the field and they were reading her biography, the announcer said, and here's our football queen, da-da-da. She's this, she's that, she's this, she's that. She's also a member of Calvary Baptist Church where she is an active member of the youth group. I was a member of Calvary Baptist Church and a very active member of the youth group. I mean, I was Miss Bible person. And so when they said that about her walking across the field, she had never been in my church in her entire life. Certainly never been in our youth group. So out loud, I'm sitting in the stands with the band, with like all the other kids around me, and I say, she ain't been in our church in a day in her life. That Mississippi came out real strong, didn't it? Everybody laughed, thought it was cute. Oh, that is funny. That's funny. Hypocrisy at its finest. This is where the thread of this person is in and this person is out comes from. It had been internalized for me of, in a way of, I'm in. I'm the gatekeeper. I'm the one that's in church. I'm the one that knows John 3, 16. She's probably never heard of it. I know what that is. She's out. I'm in, I'm privileged, I'm chosen, I'm good, I'm righteous. She ain't. Do you remember in Charlottesville, I think that was in 2017 when they were protesting the Confederate statue coming down and it, the, the young lady was killed. And do you remember the, the, the white guys with the khaki pants and the white shirts and the lanterns or whatever they had and they were shouting in the streets, they were saying, Jews will not replace us. That's because there was an internalization of replacement theory. They had replaced, those white men had replaced the Jews. They were not going to be replaced by them because they're better. They're more righteous. They are chosen by God. See how this anti-Semitism works. It's heinous. This is not what that scripture is saying. 
It's just another example of proof texting. Taking a scripture and twisting it to mean what I already think it means. Making a scripture line up with my racism and my homophobia and my anti-Semitism and my misogyny. Making 1 Timothy say where it says, I permit not a woman to speak or teach. Well, that means women can't preach. Never mind the fact that the woman in that passage was one woman in the congregation who was asking a lot of questions. And Paul is just saying, hey, we need her to be quiet so we can get through this service. Not all women. Not all women. Not for all time. But that's where I can twist a scripture to make it mean what I already believe it means. And it's not okay. When I'm doing that, I'm making God in my image and not allowing the text to make me understand how very much I am made in the image of God. We err. We err when we do not consider the text of the, the context of the passage. Instead, this passage was most likely heard in this way. Jesus' audience would have heard that Jesus was denying what their own history promises. Remember Second Temple Judaism. They were looking for a Messiah that would resurrect the dead, that would kill their enemies that would triumph, would make them on top again, that would restore to them all that they had lost, that he would establish a new Jerusalem. And Jesus was not saying that. And they're looking at him aghast, going, whoa, you are not what we were promised. That's not what we were promised. This crowd's violent reaction has nothing to do with any sort of insularity or anti-Gentile sentiments. Their prophecies told of a, a Messiah that would overturn powers that be, and that's not what they were hearing from Jesus right here. That's why they got angry. Not that it was going to go to the Gentiles and pass them over. The Jewish people are a people of grace. They're the ones that teach us from the book of Exodus to welcome the stranger and love the foreigner and to help those that are not like us, that all are made in the image of God. But over the years, we have taken these scriptures and made them anti-Semitic instead of reading them in the context of where they are and what they are maybe really saying. Judaism is not a graceless religion. Jesus' first followers were all Jews. The writers of the New Testament were all Jews. Was there possible resentment along the way? Sure. So what are we supposed to think about Luke 4? And there's a lot of things to think about. And, and I want to say this. I don't know if I've said this before. If I have, just tune me out. But I want to say it here. Do not ever allow me to say that one interpretation is the only interpretation. Don't let me say that, that this is the only way to think about a scripture. The only time that I should ever do that is when it comes to God loves you. You are made in the image of God. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves others. Jesus wants us to love others. There's only one interpretation to those. But anything else, we can agree to disagree. We can talk about, we can discuss. 
But this is what I think about Luke 4. Jesus was adding seats to the table. Jesus was, getting his, Jesus was getting his listeners ready for another evolution of Judaism. Jesus was going to eliminate the worn-out idea of who was in and who was out. Jesus was eliminating the gatekeepers. And there's also a reminder here that there's always so much more going on with the text than we can ever imagine. We don't know what it's like to be a first-century Jew any more than we would know what it would be like to be a first-century Jew in Second Temple Judaism. We don't know. But here's the other thing. Misunderstandings of people can cause us to begin walking down a road of dehumanization. We see a path up ahead, and it leads us to hate. We begin to see ourselves as better. We become gatekeepers of a faith that only belongs to us, and we all lose. How can we keep from becoming these gatekeepers? How do we keep ourselves from becoming me on homecoming night? We remember that everyone is made in the image of God and beloved of God and chosen by God. Every Hindu, every Buddhist, every Jew, every African American, every disabled person, every criminal, every transgendered person, every gay person, every weird person, every person who gets on our nerves, every person that we cannot wait to get away from in a conversation, or every person that we artfully dodge to never get into that conversation in the first place. Everyone who doesn't go to church but tells the world that they do. Everyone. May God help us.